I, I, I have been very um, focused in my spirit about walking through the creed and the confession of the Christian faith with you, not as an assignment, like here's the creed, go study it, but rather the theology of who we are as believers. And so last time we were together, we ministered on I believe in. Um, and I didn't mean to personalize that so much. That's a corporate thought, but I wanted you to personalize it because at the end of the day, what you believe in is what matters to you. What I believe in doesn't really mean that much to you. What, what is your faith in? With that said, our faith is an awesome thing. That's the church. So I don't exist in a vacuum. I, don't, I, I have a relationship with Jesus, but I don't exist by myself. And so my existence as a child of God is inside of a family, which means I have brothers and sisters. And I am responsible to them for, for the most part. I mean, I hope you understand what I mean by that, is I'm responsible to love them, to care for them, to listen to them, to nurture them. And, and that's part of loving my neighbor. So at the very beginning of our faith, we're within inside this cocoon of community. And in the cocoon, stuff's coming alive. Stuff's transforming. So in the beginning of our faith, we're in this cocoon of community where I'm being changed into who he wants me to be. You're going through transformations of mind and soul and spirit, watching what the Father teaches you. So faith's a big deal. I mean, and I, I'm, I'm persuaded that it's far more than, hey, come forward if you want to accept Jesus and say this prayer. And then we're going to sign you up for baptism. And then we're going to put you to work. Um, it's far more than that. And we all know it is because we all sort of, sort of said a prayer as part of our confessional faith. But we know that our relationship with Christ was way bigger than saying a prayer. I mean, we, we figured that out early on. And so I, I want to I take a slow walk into what that relationship really looks like. And, and part of that is wrestling with my faith, you wrestling with yours. And yes, I said wrestle because I don't believe we get all this overnight. Um, I, I, I'm, I eschew the idea of absolute certainty. Um, I got this figured out. This is what's right. I, I feel like I've had so much repentance in my life already where I changed my mind about God and changed my mind about how God felt about me that I'm done doubling down on <laughs> like an opinion or a thought. So I'm okay with wrestling the, the, the avenues of my faith. Um, but at the end of the day, I believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ, His Son, the Holy Spirit. I believe in whom I believe. And that's, that's really what we're springing off of tonight as we talk about God the Father. One of my favorite subjects, God the Father Almighty. And I want to save Almighty and deal with God the Father and what that looks like. So join me at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. What I'd like to do tonight is read a few verses that closes the Gospel of Matthew, and then I would like to read a little bit before we're finished from the Apostle Paul, because I want to show you Jesus and His mandate. It might be a little heavy word, but I'll stay with it for a moment. His mandate of what we often call the Great Commission and then I want to see how Paul sort of deals with it. But they both deal with this in the same language, and that's father language. 
And let's read it first, and then let's concentrate on a specific. From Matthew 28, 16. Then the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, by the way, if, if they saw him and some doubted, don't be surprised that people doubt. I mean, they were looking at Jesus, and they doubted Jesus. So we're not going to win everyone. <laughs> I remind myself of stuff like this sometimes when I'm reading the Bible. I go, why can't I get this person to believe this? Why, why aren't they getting excited about it? And I read this and go, oh, well, you know, there's Jesus standing in front of them, and they doubted. So uh, we're okay if they doubt. We're also, we're not, it's also not true that if people could see the miraculous, the fantastic, they'd be believers because they saw the resurrected Jesus and they didn't believe. So don't, do, don't rely on the miraculous and the fantastic to get people to believe. We're gonna, this is going to sound odd, but we're going to have to have something deeper than what you can see. I know that sounds opposite because we're like, well, if you could touch it, you'd believe it was there. We're going to have to actually have something deeper than, than the physical or the emotional. We're going to have to have something that finds people in their darkness that lifts people up when they're down, that loves them when they're unlovable, that forgives them when they're unforgivable. See, that's from another dimension. And so this dimension is touch, taste, sight, smell. That other dimension is you don't deserve forgiveness, but you get it anyway. You go, well, that doesn't make sense. That, that makes sense. It doesn't make sense as you forgive someone that doesn't deserve forgiveness. Welcome to Jesus. Welcome to the kingdom. So so we're talking about a faith that runs deep into the things that are often countercultural to the way we see them in the natural realm. And so from there, Jesus says in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. I want to concentrate on verse 19. This is often, Matthew 28, 19 is almost always called the Great Commission. Go into all the earth, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I want to concentrate on that for this reason. In the first, I've been doing some deep dive lately into the first several hundred years of Christian faith. I'm really kind of taken with trying to find out what the early fathers were writing about. They didn't have this book in the way we have it. They didn't have this leather-bound copies of the Bible. And the New Testament is a relatively new thing that's being codified in the first few centuries as they're picking these letters they're getting from that's been copied from Paul and the letter copied from Peter. And they're kind of deciding what goes in and what goes out. And that, that, that's going to happen in a, you know, a couple centuries after that. But in that interim time, what's fascinating is to go back and find what those fathers were writing about. Now, I might have shared this with you a few months ago, but um, the number one topic that the first 300 years of Christian writing was about was the topic of patience, which is really odd because nobody talks about that anymore. Like, you don't go to a church and hear, we're going to do a sermon on patience. But they didn't write about hardly anything else. Most of the great essays of the first three and a half centuries of the Christian church was on patience because they were living in an empire that was opposed to them constantly, and they kept wondering, are we going to make it? And they kept hearing, patience, God's got this. 
patience. God's got this. And they kept, they preached it decade after decade after decade after decade. And I'm, I'm, I'm my hat's off to that because we're not patient for a week. You know, uh, I want this. Well, you got to wait a week. Ugh. Is there a way we could get it in like two days? You know, <laughs> that's kind of our attitude. It's like, oh, we got to wait. A, we got to wait. We got to wait a week. I mean, I, I can work around that. We can figure something out. And so that's amazing to me that they, that, that, that's what they landed on, that they could have landed on anything, but they land on what we really need. We need to be patient. God is good. We're going to see that. We're going to see fruits of our labor. He's going to come through. You're going to make it. All those things sort of encapsulated in patience. Another thing that fascinates me is up until about Constantine in the fourth century, which is with the emperor of Rome that basically makes Rome Christian, even though Constantine isn't actually doesn't actually get baptized until his deathbed. He just has a confession, sort of a confessional Christianity until his deathbed. But he makes Christianity legal, which made it safe for the first time in, you know, 350 years. Up until that point, Matthew 28 was not the Great Commission. When they teach it, when we go back and read the sermons of those first three centuries and their writings, they didn't emphasize that our job is to go into all the earth and preach the gospel to every creature and make disciples. They emphasized God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Every church writer that we have for 350 years that wrote on Matthew 28, 19, mentioned this is our proof text for the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to give much commentary on why they didn't have a great commission. <laughs> why, why didn't they feel like it was their job to go out? Um, what we have found is that the early church didn't have a, the first several hundred years of the church didn't really have an emphasis on go outside the doors to evangelize. They had a heavy emphasis on making disciples of Christ when you come into the doors. So you go, how did the church grow? Slowly. But it grew by you loving your neighbor. So the only evangelism was go live like Christ. And if people are interested enough, they'll ask where you're meeting. And then you go from there. Now, I'm not trying to advocate that's the way we ought to evangelize. I just think it's pretty cool. I just think that for a few hundred years, they went, let's live lives, faith in Christ. We've been baptized. Let's live lives that look like Christ. Let's live this in a world that's hostile to us. And let that be our witness and immerse people. That's the word baptize. To baptize. Don't just think water when you hear baptize. Because the word baptize in the Greek is to emerge. It's to take underneath. It's to dunk. Okay? Now we do it in water, of course, because we have a physical baptism that's representative of what Christ has done in dying at Calvary and raising from the dead. But think of it in terms of an immersion in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So my role then in living Christ out in the world is to immerse as much as I can people in the knowledge that God is their Father, Jesus is the Son, and there is this person called the Holy Spirit. And in truth, those three prongs cover everything you and I do on a day-to-day -day basis. We have a loving Father who cares for us, who puts food on our table, who blesses us with his hand, who puts our foot into the path of righteousness. We have the son that identifies us as sons. We have the son. Therefore, I know I can be a son. I can be a daughter. The son makes it familial. We'll get into sermons on the son. And we have the Holy Spirit, sort of like the blood through our veins, the thing that makes us who we are. He walks with us, talks with us comforts us, never leaves us, never forsakes us. The very real presence 
of who God is. What we sense when we are together is the presence of the Holy Spirit within us and among us. It's not just two or three gathered together in His name, but it's us walking in here already with the Holy Spirit. So when we come together, we don't spend an hour asking God to show up in this room. That's not, I mean, you can do that. Um, I'm not mocking it and I'm not cutting it down. I just wish that people would understand that they walk the Holy Spirit into the room and that if they would take that serious, a lot of times they could cut the fat out of a lot of what we're calling worship. Cut the fat out and realize, let's get, let's get down to talking about Jesus. If, if Jesus, Jesus said, I'm a, I'm a little bit off the rails here, but I got I to gotta hit this. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll glorify me. He'll never speak of himself. He'll only speak of what is mine. So I have a, I have a belief that if we'll come in and start talking about Jesus lifting up Jesus, glorifying Jesus, the Holy Spirit goes to work. Because Jesus said, he doesn't talk about himself, he talks about me, he glorifies me. So where Jesus is glorified, the Holy Spirit goes to work. And a lot of times the reason we're trying to quote unquote pray the Holy Spirit in is because we've come in talking about everything else. Our minds are so saturated with work and politics and sports and money and kids and jobs, stuff that matters in our lives. Sometimes they matter extremely They're extremely important. Sometimes they're peripheral and we've made them a pseudo God, but we walk into the presence and then have to pray all of that out in a way like, okay, oh, let's get serious now about, you know, let's, 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 let's get in here and talk about some Jesus until we, you know, just kind of sputter through, have our meeting and then go back out and do the real world. You know, uh, you're safe for more than that. You are. And, and you know it. And one of the glorious parts of your journey is that you've bought in that you're safe for more than that, that your discipleship is to be completely baptized in the reality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father. I love the sound of it. Because for portions of my Christianity, I didn't think of God as my Father. I thought of God as my Master. God was this presence who was everywhere all the time, he was all powerful. Um, he, he brinked on the edge of anger with me most of the time because he demanded that I live in a way that was right, holy, moral, and good. And if I was going to claim him by claiming his son, then I was going to be held to a higher standard and that I should be living in a way that keeps God at peace with me instead of keeps God at war with me. Now, a lot of what I needed was a real revelation of the finished work of Christ. I needed to understand that Jesus had come to the cross, taken Paul White and all his problems into himself, and then died as me so he could resurrect as a new man. I needed a refresher course. When I talk to you about grace got a hold of me, or I started to understand the love of God, or I walked into the finished work, that's what I mean. That's when the revelation of, son, I'm not mad at you. I love you. I've paid the price for you. Let's get on with living. Okay, that, that revelation tr- nearly 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, that transformed my life. That saved my life. That kept me, for all intents and purposes, in ministry. It kept me walking for the Lord because I could live. I could live for God and live, like, like breathe, you know, without the press and the pressure of a master-slave relationship, smack, better jump, let me tell you how high. 
And it, and it really came down to realizing that God is more than a distant entity in a place called heaven across the galaxy who made an appearance 2,000 years ago as a man so he could put a standard up there that I still can't reach and so that I could just feel guilty about all of my failures. And I'm just telling you the way I saw God, and I think a lot of people do. In fact, I know they do, because I hear from them all over the world all the time that those little statements we make right there have been the things that have pulled the blinders off of people's eyes. And even just 30 seconds in a message, and they would go, oh, wait a minute, I don't know if the rest of that's true, but if that right there is true, whew, I got a shot. You got a shot. And the reason you got a shot is because he's not a master over in the glory land. What Jesus came to do was reveal to us that God is our Father. Now, in our culture, that means something different than it meant in their culture. And this is where this message to me, really, this is where the rubber hits, meets the road kind of thing. Because I can stand here in the 21st century and talk about fathers in a culture in which it is no longer publicly accepted for dad to be verbally abusive. It's no longer culturally accepted for dad to be physically violent. Now, some of us come up in times where, yeah, dad wasn't happy and nobody happy. You know, somebody might get a backhand knocked across the floor. Um, but that's not, in our, in our day and time, you better do that in private and you better hold on to it closely because that's not going to fly. Thank God, by the way. Thank God we live in an hour where you're not allowed, where you're not, it's not socially applauded for you to beat people up and knock them down all in the name of dad rules the house. Now, I'm glad we don't live in that. It took a long time to get here. It, it did. And I, I call that the grace of God. I call that the kingdom expanding. Uh, I, I call that heaven is winning. <laughs> Heaven's defeating that little pocket of hell. But that's, just, that's on the broad scope. That's not for everybody because there's still people within in their lives that don't have a relationship with their dad and they don't have a father that loves them and they don't have one at home at all or they have one that's abusive or that molests. So I get it. And so I take that very seriously when we start talking about fathers. So our culture, we see it through a little softer lens. If I say to you, we have a good father, we go, yeah, good father, take care of his spouse. Good father, take care of his kids. Good father won't beat you half to death. You know, good father, <coughs> that, that goes down smooth in Jesus' day. And especially up into at least the early church of the second and third century. They were dealing with what the Romans called the paterfamilias. The paterfamilias is the paternal head of the family. The paternal head of the family is dad, the father. And the father owned everything in his house. He didn't just own everything, he owned everyone. He owned his wife, he owned his kids, he owned his slaves, everything was his property. Everything carried his name, and in carrying his name, it better carry it the way he wants them to. He had the right to cut off his wife. He had the, the right to cut off his children. He had the right to cut off his slaves, his servants, and his property. And when I say cut them off, I mean cut them out. Completely out of his life, completely off of his name, completely out of his will. And he had the legal right to do it. The paterfamilias could get rid of children because he had too many of them or because they didn't work right at the house or they didn't do what they were supposed to do. 
This was a culture that could bear a child, and if you didn't want it, you could leave it beside the side of the road. And someone would come along, and either your, your child would be picked up and raised, or it would lie there and die. And if it lied there and died, nobody knew who his parents was. That's just the way of life. If they picked it up to raise it, they didn't pick it up to raise it as their kid. They picked it up to raise it as their slave so that when it got old enough, they could sell it in the market. This is the world Jesus speaks into. When he says, Father, there's a cringe. Okay? It's not good father. It's father doesn't just know best. Father rules the roost. Father runs the show. The paterfamilias was the overlord of everything within his domain. This is why it would have been nothing. It, would, it wouldn't have made sense for Jesus to say, because I've had people say to me, do you believe God's our mother? And my response to that is God's our everything. God's our father. God's our mother. If, if it's in a woman, it's in God, because God made all of us. Okay, so the, whatever emotional makeup is there, whatever... Uh, what, whatever personality is there, it's in our Father. And if you want to say He's God the Mother, I don't lose my mind over that. You know, say God the Mother. The reason you don't see that in the Bible, I think, is because you're in a world of the paterfamilias. To have called God the Mother would have been about like call, and this, this is going to hit our ear wrong, so I'm warning you before I say it, okay? To have called God the Mother would have been like calling God the Slave, and everyone would have went, you can't. That doesn't relate. It'd be about like me getting up and going, you know, God's our slave. You know, that's not, that doesn't work out real well. God's not our slave. Like We don't tell God what to do, and he has to do it, and we smack God, and God goes, oh, I'm sorry. And he goes off and does it. Okay, as odd as it would be for me to say that would have been for Jesus in his day, or the writers of the Bible to say God is your mother. But they're sneaky. The writers of the Bible are sneaky, and, and here's why. Because God is very much motherly. But in a world that won't accept that kind of language, the Bible sneaks it in. He who was from the bosom of the Father. That's John talking, John chapter 1. Um, and he uses the word for breast. Even though that's a very feminine thing to say. John uses it because covertly he's saying, Our Father is very much our mother. He's fatherly and he's motherly. Okay, let me give you another one that hardly ever gets talked about, but we, we always use this story as a way to see people saved. And I think that's fine, but man, we miss a lot of stuff when we just keep thinking everything's for sinners needing to get saved in the Bible. Uh, how many of you realize sinners don't read the Bible to get saved? Okay, how many of you realize believers read the Bible to see Jesus? So why are we always thinking every story is about getting people saved? No, most of the stories are not about getting lost people saved. They're about getting saved people right, saved people whole, uh, saved people fixed. <laughs> it's about like medication and bandaging all the problems I have. Okay. Prodigal son. Great salvation story, right? We all used it. I mean, I've closed a thousand sermons with, you know, Maybe you're out there slopping hogs tonight like the younger brother. You know? And you, you're going to slop hogs until someday you come to yourself. And you say, I believe I'll go home and eat with my father. And I want to invite you to come home tonight because you've been 
slopping hogs. And then, you know, when we got a little more enlightened, we'd say, and some of you are the elder brother tonight. You, you're just mad at the world and you've, you've accepted Christ, but you don't know the Father. I believe you ought to come home tonight. Those are both fine sermons. I, I, I believe that. I'll use it again. I'm, I'm sure there's going to come a day when I'll be inspired to say to someone, you're just slopping hogs. God loves you. Come home. But what gets lost in the shuffle in that story is that Jesus tells the story of a father who doesn't at all respond the way the paterfamilias is supposed to respond. The younger brother says, I'd like my inheritance. And the father has to die to give him his inheritance. Now, how do you think that's going to fly? But he writes him a check. And then he gives it to the elder brother as well. And when that boy comes back, dad doesn't charge him, condemn him, make him feel guilty. He has a right to, he has a right to cut him off, which is what a good paterfamilias will do. He ain't coming back to my house. You already took half my fortune. But this dad runs to meet him at the end of the lane, gives him shoes, gives him... The whole story is meant to make the, the reader shocked at a father who would do this. And you want to know who gets it in the story that he's supposed to be shocked? The elder brother. The elder brother comes to the, won't even come into the party because I don't even know who this man is. This guy's not my father. This guy's not a real dad. This is not how a father with power is supposed to act. So dad comes out to him, which the paterfamilias doesn't come out to you. He's not going to come to you. You better come to him. But he comes out to you like a mom would. You ever read this story and thought, this, he's acting like a mom. This is a subversive story by Jesus. Listen, he's preaching God the Father in a way that no one had ever preached him before. And so the elder brother goes, yeah, my, my brother went out and wasted his substance on whores. And then he comes back here and you accept him. And the dad says to him, son, your, your brother was dead, but he's alive. We should rejoice. Everything that I have has always been yours. No good paterfamilias in the Roman Empire would ever say that. I already gave you your inheritance. But everything I have, have, is yours. It's not just your inheritance that was yours. It's everything I am that was yours. When Jesus tells this story, his audience has got to think, this is just stupid. There's no dad acts like this. There, there's no father that, that will do this. But that's the point. You see, what Jesus is doing is introducing a father that they never knew they had. Because they had a God. But Jesus said, let me tell you a story about a man with sons. Let me tell you a story about a dad. Let me tell you a story about a father. This was so confusing that as he's on his way to the cross, one of his disciples raises his hand and says, can you just show us what the Father will look like? And Jesus says, how long do I need to be with you that you realize that if you see me, you've seen the Father? And they had to ask because what Jesus was showing them is not what they thought a father would look like. Jesus was spending time with the wrong people. Jesus was encouraging grown men to turn the other cheek. Carry the load two miles when told to carry it one. Jesus was stepping opposite of the masculinity code of his day. And he was stepping opposite of the vengeance code of his day. 
And he was stepping outside of the paterfamilias of his day. He was introducing a father that loves the wrong people, that cares for the kids too much, that runs. Dads don't run, (laughs) but he runs down to the end of the lane with gifts and he showers this pig-smelling kid of his with love. And that so confused the disciples, they went, what would the father look like if we saw him? And Jesus goes, everything I've been telling you. If you've been listening to me, you've been listening to the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that was mind-blowing to them. They come to Jesus and go, teach us how to pray like you. We want to pray like you. You pray, man. When you pray, stuff happens. And Jesus says, okay, here's how you start. Our Father. If we didn't say anything else, that that was subversive enough. That was big enough. Our Father who art in heaven because it was allowing them our father. It was bringing them in to what they had watched Jesus have with his father. Jesus told them, I and my father are one. What he says, I say, what I hear him say, I say, what I see him do, I do. You want to know how to pray? Our father. I'm inviting you into the same relationship with my father that I have, you get to call him our father. There's two people in the world that can call my dad, dad. That's my brother and me. There's two people in the world that can call me dad. And that's my son and my daughter. I'm their father. He's my father. Um, That comes with certain rights and privileges. Um, you ca- I carry my father's name into every room that I go in. And while I don't make an announcement of that or hand out cards, I'm here to represent Rick White from Poplar Bluff, Missouri. I know that in many ways I do represent a heritage of what I carry in my name. Okay. I'm just, I'm trying to use practical understanding of what I carry. And that many times has caused me to move, to, to talk, to live in a way in which I live up to the name that I carry because I think I know what my dad would expect. I know what my family is all about. And I want to represent that in this room. And I want to represent that in this sermon. And I want to represent that to this person. And I don't want to do or say anything that, that reflects poorly. And so to me, that's carrying the name. Um, And that's part of what we do when we call him our father is if you'll recall a couple months ago, we we ministered and I think it actually aired today, uh, the chosen people of God, a message that was really designed not to identify which of us get blessed, but to identify which of us are to be the blessing because to be the chosen people of God is to be the people chosen to be the blessing in the earth, to make the difference, to love people and to forgive people. And so if you want to be chosen, you choose a certain responsibility. There is a lot of that inherent in claiming the father, claiming him as our own, because in claiming the father and who he is, we are not just taking into us the privileges of heaven, Whatever is in heaven, let it be on earth. We're also taking into us the responsibility of loving as our Father would love. Forgiving as our Father would forgive. Because I carry His name with me. So if I tell you I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a 
Christian, not a word Jesus would have used, but let's use it. I'm a Christian. What I'm saying is I'm a follower of Christ. I have a responsibility to carry my dad's name. I represent my father in this room to you. So what I say to you then becomes a reflection of what I think my father would say to you. This is why this is very important that we get God right. Because if we don't get God right, if we don't get God as our father, we get God as our taskmaster. We get God as our overlord. And taskmasters and overlord won't be paid back. And this is the God that I'm hearing preached by a lot of people. A God who can, who, who can just barely contain himself from frying the earth. You know, that he's only being held back just by a sliver of grace, you know. And notice, it's always us. It's always us, the real Christians, that are holding back the wrath of God. You know, boy, it's the true church right now. It's, it's just you real believers that are holding back God from coming down here and doing what God... It's all, we're always in the right camp, you know. It's, it's, a, it's always like, boy, if we weren't the breach in the, 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 that held back the flood, let us present a Father who loves people. Who cares for people? When we say, I believe in God the Father, we are saying, I believe in a countercultural version of the Father. He's not the Father that is an overlord. He's the Father who loves us, that looks like the Father Jesus described, that is a Father who brings us into Himself. Now, what is the most important aspect of fatherhood is that you have fathered sons and daughters. To call God your father means you're identifying yourself as part of the family. You're identifying yourself as one of the sons and daughters of God. And by default, then, the sisters and brothers, or the men and the women that claim that Christ become sisters and brothers. Now, there's a couple of things that, that kind of hit our PTSD a little bit. One of them is... Uh, there's some people can't handle the brothers and sister talk because it sounds real religious to them. So if you say to them, hey, brother, and they go, that sounds like church, and I got hurt by people that called me brother or sister. I get it. I understand. I'll probably accidentally call you brother or sister a lot because it was literally the language that I learned when I, when I was coming up in church. Um, I don't mean religious in any way. Um, I, I mean it through the family of God, but... I've seen it, people wince at it, and I think, okay, they'd rather you use their name, so go for that. And, and so I try to do that. Um, the other is that some people wince at, at calling God Father. Um, and they wince because they didn't have a good father. And maybe their father abandoned them, or their father hurt them, he abused them, whatever. And I don't want to open wounds, because there's a lot of people listening that have wounds from their fathers. I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to poke that. Um, but it's also why... Part of our journey in Christ is continuously being healed of the things that wounded and damaged us in this world. And so God doesn't shy away from being our father or our mother because our parents weren't good. In fact, God steps into that void because sometimes because they weren't good. So I've also heard testimonies from people that say, I find peace in calling God the Father because I've never been able to call anybody Father. Okay, so, so at this, we don't back off because we know someone might be bothered at the idea of a father because there's someone else that goes, I'd love to have one. I'd love to have one that cared. 
And so what I, I look at it as you present the Father for who He is and you allow Him to do the work in people. Some people are going to need through different language. They're going to need it through different lingo. And the Holy Spirit will know how to direct that. Some people need to hear it that way. It's the only way they can possibly, can possibly grasp it. Um, let's read Paul for a second. 2 Corinthians 6. I, I want to land here with Paul because... When I think of Paul talking about father, I almost, almost only think about Abba. Paul likes to use the phrase, the Holy Spirit within inside of us cries out, Abba, Father, right? Uh, he does it in Galatians. Um, he does it in Romans. And it's a beautiful word, Abba, because Abba is a word that really, probably closer to our modern lingo, is, is more daddy. It's an affectionate term for father. Maybe it's dad, papa. However, you might say it in a way that really relates you to yours. Like you wouldn't call someone else like your dad. So it's a, there's a, a, like a possession to Abba. Jesus used it. Remember, Jesus is praying and he uses Abba. And he says to God in John 17, I've revealed your name to my disciples. And the only name that we ever hear Jesus use that his disciples probably weren't using was Abba. Because they were using all the Hebrew names for God, but they weren't using Abba. So Jesus reveals Abba to his disciples to show them a father that loves them. So when I think of Paul talking about God as father, I almost always think of Abba. But I want to show you another one. From 2 Corinthians chapter 6, let me start in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, actually, by the way, that pronoun you, some of you are using different translations that'll say we, that's better. Because the pronoun's collective, not singular in the Greek. So he's actually saying, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, before I read any further, let me just answer his question. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We are the temple of God. Well, the temple of God doesn't have any agreement with idols because you don't put an idol in the temple of God. And so Paul's point, because this is right after be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, which is not a marriage verse. It's a quit aligning yourself to do the same job with people who don't share your faith because they don't share your faith. <laughs> so be careful who you line yourself up with is what Paul says. Because if you're trying to accomplish the same thing, you need to be going the same direction. And in Paul's world, idols were a thing, big time. And so Paul goes, careful, because some of these people, don't, they don't share what you are. He goes, and by the way, the temple of God, which you are, all of you, all of me, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He goes, it doesn't have any agreement with idols. And then he quotes, I will dwell in them, walk among them, be their God, they shall be my people. That's a direct quote from uh, the Old Testament. Um, like Isaiah. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Paul kind of goes crazy here with a little mosaic of Old Testament scriptures. He grabs a little bit of 2 Samuel 7. He grabs a little bit of Isaiah. He grabs a little bit of Septuagint, 2 Samuel. And he crams them all together like they're one big verse. They're not. They, they look that way in 2 Corinthians 6 because it's just 
quote, 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 quote. What Paul's doing is sort of reaching back into his Old Testament, his old Saul of Tarsus, and he's grabbing verse after verse, kind of putting these verses together to establish this thought. And he pulls that, I'll be a father to you from 2 Samuel, where God says to David, I would... I don't want you to build me a temple. You're a bloody man. You're a violent man. I don't want a temple from you. But your son is going to build me a temple. Remember, that's Solomon. He goes, your son's going to build me a temple. I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. That's what God says to him. And that's the moment in the Old Testament. Let me, let me slow down there and just bring this out. That's the moment. That's it. In the entire Old Testament where God says... I'll be a father and you'll be a son. It's to Solomon in 2 Samuel 7. And Paul, who has seen Jesus on the road to Damascus and had a revelation of the new covenant in Arabia, said, drags that obscure little verse out of 2 Samuel 7 and drops it to the Corinthians and says, he shall be your father and you shall be his sons. And it's Paul who takes a God speaking to David about Solomon moment, grabs it and lays it out into the new covenant and says, actually, it's God is the father to you and you are his sons. The question is, does Paul have the right to do that? Because that's not, God didn't say that to you in 2 Samuel 7. He said that to David about Solomon. Of course, Paul has the right to do that. Why? Because how we read the Bible is to read where we can see Jesus. And what Paul is doing with 2 Samuel is finding Jesus in the text. If Jesus is the Son and the Father is God, then everyone that's in Jesus is also a son and also a daughter. So Paul personalizes a verse that was not previously personalized and says, He shall be a father and you shall be his sons. And then notice he says the Lord Almighty. And Almighty is a word that goes on to be translated in the book of Revelation as omnipotent, all-powerful. When we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, we are saying, I believe that God is more than a master. He's more than a distant Lord. I believe that God is my dad, my Abba, our Father. And I believe that He holds me in, an, um, in His omnipotent hands. He holds me. It doesn't mean he determines everything. That's not what omnipotence is. Omnipotence is not, I make everything happen. Because if that's the case, then everything bad is God's fault. Omnipotence is, I hold all of this together. I hold you. If bad things happen to you, they can only happen to you as you're held in my hand. So as they happen to you, they happen to me. I'm, all, I'm in everything, all in all. God the Father, almighty, so that he is all powerful, all loving, and my all, Father. I'm thankful for a, a, a 2 Corinthians 6. Problem is we miss the force for the trees. We miss the force for the trees in the same way we do with the prodigal son because we're so interested in the hog slopping that we forget that dad looks a lot like a mom. Like nobody ever preaches that. We miss the force for the trees in 2 Corinthians 6 because Paul goes, come out from among them and be, unclean, and, and be separate. Touch not the unclean thing. 
The same Paul, by the way, that also says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, don't go back underneath, touch not, taste not, handle not. So Paul's not contradicting himself. He's simply saying that as the temple of God, come out from the other temples, come out from the other idols and realize that you have a father who loves you and that you are his son. What do I mean by miss the forest for the trees? If you miss the forest for the trees, you never get to father. All you do is just preach to people about coming out from among them. And that's what we do. Instead of letting people know he's your father, we just go, you're going to come out from among them. Come on, go read the next verse. Read the next verse. I'm a son and he's my father. And if I knew I was a son and he was my father, I'd stop slapping hogs. I'd come out from among them. <laughs> I might not come out from among them today. I might not come out from among them tomorrow. But the knowledge that I got a dad, I'm going to come to my senses and I'm going to come home and eat with my father. I who was dead, I'm soon going to be alive. Patience? Are you patient to let those people come into the midst of our garden and be introduced to the God the Father for the first time in their life? They get to hear that He's their Father. And they don't go out next week and come out from among them. But they keep being told he is your father, and you are his sons. Just like the younger brother slopping hogs, they need some, they need a maternal loving father. That's what Jesus is preaching. A father who is in the strength of a father and the love of a mother. A father who is almighty, who holds within his hands all of us. Are we that patient? Are we able? to allow people to wrestle that. Because when we come to the end of our services, we will be a people who have the opportunity to vocally express our Christian faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty. By the time we walk through this series, we'll have walked through every line of the creed and you'll have to debate in your own heart what you feel about those. I got trouble with some of them. I pray it anyway. Why? Because I'm part of the family of God. I got like a couple of lines in there where I go, I don't know about that. But I pray it because I don't have to know about everything. I know in whom I believed. God the Father, Jesus Christ, His only Son, the Holy Spirit. That, that's, that's holding me right there in His hand. Stuff, other stuff's peripheral. But we give the, you're going to be given the chance to vocalize and to pray that. And you're going to invite people in to pray that with you. And there's going to be a lot of people who can't pray it at all because they don't believe any of it. And they go, these people are nuts. I'll never say that. And then in their third week there or their fifth week there or their eighth week there, they can mumble one of the lines because they start to kind of believe it. Maybe they get to that part and they go, maybe he's God the Father Almighty. That's what I mean when I tell you salvation is something you step into over time. It's not something you flip a light switch. It's something you wrestle with who he is and you allow that to saturate your soul and he's patient he's way more patient than i am he's probably way more patient than all of us but he is patient let's pray and if you haven't experienced and i'm talking i think for the most part to someone who might be watching or listening and you've never really experienced that god is your father i hope this at least causes you to pray about the reality of him being your father.
right? If that stings and that hurts, you go, I don't like my father. I don't like to think of God in that way. I understand. So does he. And that's why he meet you at the end of the lane with shoes and a robe. That's why he'll, that's why he'll mother you. He loves you too much to let you go. You are a good father. Thank you for this good group. I love them. And they're not near as much as you do. It's not possible. I am convinced that your love is so radical, so powerful, so overwhelming, that none of us, none of us have yet to even comprehend a, a shade of how loving you are. <laughs> you love us to the point that you stand at the end of the lane for all of our shenanigans. And you wait because you are patient and you are loving like a good father. And I've come to you so many times reeking of pig pen. And I've been out in the field so mad so many times with all my religious ideas. And in every case, you come to me with love as a good father. Father, I ask for a fresh revelation for this room and for everyone watching and listening. A fresh revelation that Jesus is what the Father looks like. That Jesus is what the Father always looked like and that Jesus will be what the Father always does look like forever. The same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Give us this revelation so that we can be at rest in the Father's house. In Jesus' name, amen.